I'm wondering if any of you have heard the notion um, that what the Buddha taught was that life is suffering. Have you heard this? And where did you, where did you hear that? Do you think what does that come from? Your mother. Okay. Anybody else? Yeah, it's just out there in the culture. And then was there a couple not so affirmative nods over on this side maybe? Was there, yeah? In the back row, would you want to say something? Yeah. Well, I, I think that's sort of the common translation. Yeah. Yeah, a common translation but maybe a misunderstanding or a mistranslation. Yeah. Yeah, I think that it would be uh, difficult for, for many of us to invest a lot of time and energy learning how to meditate or reading books on meditation or Buddhism if in the end, ultimately, it was only going to acquaint us more with life suffering, right? And in fact, a lot of people in our culture who do hear that supposed teaching, life is suffering, uh, for them, uh, for many people, it, it paints a picture of Buddhism that doesn't allow them to become curious enough about the teachings to, to learn from them. And I think partly, uh, perhaps this is because, as a general rule, uh, we, most of us in this culture, grew up in an environment that repressed the difficult in favor of the facade. So there's this, um, if something proposes to put us in touch with the difficult, uh, due due to the fact that we've learned to try to avoid the difficult as much as we can, we're we're not gonna enter into that territory. And then secondly, if we're talking about some school of learning or a spiritual path, we want to know that the tradition has some confidence um, in its own ability to help alleviate suffering. So the idea or notion that life is suffering uh, is in fact a, a, a mistranslation. The Buddha didn't say that. He said something like that in the first noble truth. He said um, Essentially, that uh, life can be understood uh, 
best by this word uh, dukkha, or the difficulty of life can be best understood by this word dukkha, which is a Pali word that doesn't have a an easy English translation, but it means uh, distress or disquietude or suffering or um, unsatisfactoriness. And what the Buddha was saying is that it's true that life includes dukkha, not that life is dukkha. Right? And there's a very big difference. Uh, the difference uh, is significant. <clears throat> so the, the first noble truth is that life includes uh, dukkha. Life is inclusive of dukkha. But the fourth, the, I'm sorry, the third noble truth is that uh, life is inclusive of nirodha, which is the cessation or the stopping of suffering. So, if one were inclined to say that life is suffering, it would probably be more appropriate to say that life is suffering and not suffering. So the, the whole purpose of the Buddhist path is to uh, learn how to look very closely at our own mind to see how this dukkha is created. And as we develop that skill, uh, almost naturally or simultaneously with those insights, we're starting to understand how it is that uh, cessation happens which is a little bit of doing on our part, but it's a whole lot of not doing that allows um, a greater underlying sense of well-being to rise to the top of our awareness, rise to the top of our experience. So we're, we're, we're training, if you're comfortable with that, with that word, we're training or practicing to be uh, intimate with dukkha, to know it, to understand it clearly. And so our personal and cultural history and heritage of uh, chasing comfort and avoiding pain, uh, which we all have to one degree or another, is the thing that doesn't allow us to have the right relationship to dukkha in order to come more consistently in contact with its opposite, which is freedom, which is not suffering. So I, I think then, therefore, one of the questions that Buddhist practice, meditation practice, points toward or, or delivers us into is uh, how do we be in relationship to what's difficult without being overwhelmed by it? Because right? we're being asked to turn toward it. And if, frankly, if it is unbearable, we are going to turn away. We're not going to stay.
So fortunately for us, the uh, Siddhartha Gautama was one of these people who uh, took the time and uh, had the willingness and I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe I could say a passion. He, he certainly expressed something of a longing to understand the mind very, very deeply. And this is evidenced in his choice to spend about six years in intensive uh, silent retreat. And when he, came, when he came out of that period of time, it said that he, um, he understood things that not, that not everybody... Um, that not everybody understood. He saw clearly things that were hard to see, to see clearly. And he not only had the good fortune of, of those experiences or those insights, but then uh, with some reservation actually had a willingness to then start to share them and to talk with, with people um, about them. He, he said... Uh, to some requests for teaching, why bother? Um, people have too much dust in their eyes, and it will be too difficult to see what I'm what I'm talking about. I always like to to say that uh, everybody in a, a a meditation hall doesn't have too much dust in their eyes because they've already made the decision to come. My understanding, and this is a little bit of a generalization, but I feel comfortable saying it. My understanding is of most people who come to a Dharma center is that they do have some honest relationship to suffering in their life. And they also have contact with or a longing for less suffering or greater well-being or both, however you frame it, right? So that's right view. You know, people have to study years or lifetimes just to see that so clearly, just to have that right view. One of the things that the, the Buddha did in fairly simple terms is he... He basically des- described a cause for dukkha and said that this is something that's recognizable, this cause, and it's recognizable uh, in, our, in ourselves, in our own uh, way of relating to the world, in our own behavior, in our own actions. So we can uh, study ourselves very, very uh, closely. We don't have to wait till next week. We don't have to wait... For the kids to be out of the house, we don't have to wait for more money, we don't have to wait for better health. It's, the conditions are um, ripe for wisdom. We just have to learn to pay attention in a particular kind of way. And this is important because we know how to pay attention in many, many, many ways. We're, paying, we're always paying attention to something. We're always paying attention to something. We're always taking refuge in something every moment. And a lot of the times we're taking refuge in distraction, we're taking refuge in regrets about the past, we're taking refuge in fears about the future, right? So in a sense we're, 
we're consistently taking refuge in habitual patterns, learned behaviors that may or may not be that useful in the present moment. They may actually have been very useful 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. But just because we've learned them and carried them in our mind-body system for the course of our life doesn't mean they're that functional, right? Some of them need to be thrown out altogether, 100%. Just get rid of them and we'll be better off. One of the ways that the Buddha talks about the cause of dukkha is through a description of craving, which in the Pali is tanha. And, you know, in a sense, craving is wanting something that we don't have, big or small. Uh, and it's not wanting anything we're experiencing that doesn't meet our preferences. Right? So, our preferences are part of the problem. Our, our, our uh, wishes that things be a particular way. They become a problem because the experience of mind and body and the, ex the experiences around us in the world and in the relational sphere of our lives is always changing. But we don't seem to have the ability to adapt our preferences moment to moment to actually be okay with what's happening. And, and sometimes it makes a lot of sense. We shouldn't adapt necessarily to accept injustice or violence or something like that. But there are many, many things happening around or within or perceivably to us that are inevitable uh, and part of a causal relationship between us and the environment that causes suffering, but is unnecessary. Right? And this is where the Buddhist teachings are, are particularly useful. And the other way that the Buddha talks about uh, the creation of dukkha is um, through his description of uh, clinging in the Pali, uh, upadana, right? Fixation, attachment, um, inability to let go, right? Um, So tanha is craving something and clinging is being attached to the thing we crave. So I could be moving away from a particular kind of experience. There's an aversion to something, let's say, pain in my right knee. And I'm moving away from it because I'm clinging to having a body that's without discomfort. That's my ideal scenario. 
that would be an ideal scenario for any one of us. So, so we get we get trapped by uh, desires that, in and of themselves, aren't necessarily a problem, and, and do seem to paint a picture of a life that would be good for us. Again, the problem is we can't control the environment, so we must have a more flexible view. So this is where we get into the difference between uh, wanting something and being attached to it actually manifesting in that way. So it's the attachment or the clinging that creates the suffering. It's not the desire for something to be a particular way. That's not a problem, necessarily. In the Buddhist tradition, there can be, uh, it can be said that there are four ways that we cling, four, four types of clinging. We can, one, cling to sensual pleasure. Can anybody hear the water? Or, or could you when we were doing our silent meditation? Does anybody like the way it sounds? Does it bother anybody? Okay. So it's a pleasant sound. Yeah. What do you think would happen if you were focusing on the meditation, during the meditation, if you were focusing on the sound of the water fountain and I turned it off? What might happen? What if you were really focusing on it? The voice in my head would be angry at you for turning it off. Yeah, right, that perhaps. Okay, good. Yeah, so you might be angry that I... that voice that said, why Christian that often? Good. Disturbing. Yep. You sit with that anger. Okay. Frustration. Okay, good. And then switch it. And as soon as I switch it and I go within, I can find that joy again. And no longer is that bothering me or your problem. Right. Okay, good. Good. So that image or example does have the dukkha expressed as anger and judgment, judgment outward directed, but usually doesn't feel good also. And then um, the, 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 the backing off of the attachment, right? It, you know, he didn't say it exactly like this, but um, seeing in this hypothetical situation that he probably could let it go in a sense, we say, which is to say, no longer be attached to the thing that they were enjoying. Very mundane example, but uh, quite a useful one, because it's, it can be something as simple as this, a, a pleasant sound in the environment. Uh, and when it's gone, dukkha, suffering. Right? So if something like that can cause us distress, what happens when there's a car accident and we can't get to where we want to go, right? What happens when we ordered something, nice meal at the restaurant, it's pretty expensive, more than we would normally spend, and it comes in, it's not anything that you thought it would be, right? There's a change at work in personnel or protocol, and you're attached to how things were, or some aspect of your relationship functions a certain way and then it starts to turn a little bit, right? So what do we do with that? How do we work with it? On the level of sensory pleasure, being attached to um, 
the sensory world around us uh, is an important teaching because we're consistently interacting through sight, sound, taste, touch, smell. We're interfacing with the world in that way, moment by moment. This is an unavoidable aspect or realm of human experience. Um, when I first started practicing here, I would come in and sit and that noise would bother me. And I would sometimes shut it off. And now I'm okay with it, you know. I can cling to an environment being as quiet as absolutely possible. So the view is, why would you do anything to create any more noise? And no more sound. And then I can get hung up on the view that, well, it's, it's nice. It's kind of, you know, it's, it's, it is a pleasant sound. But then I have this view that people are using it to calm their mind and it's an external aid. So they're still reliant upon something outside themselves. This is why when I used to train yoga teachers, I didn't let them use music. Have you ever gone, for anyone who does yoga, music has become part of yoga, right? So people are using high energy music to create energy so that people can do vigorous yoga, or they're using relaxing music to help people relax. The point is, if the instructions are clear and you teach people how to use yoga to calm the nervous system, they don't need music to do it. And if you learn to use breathing in certain poses, in a certain way, in a proper sequencing, you can increase energy. You don't have to play loud hip-hop music to make that happen in the body. You can, you can generate that. Uh, and you can empower people to, to do that on their own, to have that skill. right? So this being attached to views and concepts, I just used an example of two of mine. Um, this is the second form of clinging. We, we get attached to all sorts of views, all sorts of concepts. Um, there's only one way to stack the dishes in the dishwasher. Um, there's only one way to line up the different things that go on the bathroom sink, like the deodorant and the toothbrush and the, the thing you gargle, and they obviously should all be on the left, but your partner puts two of them on the right, right? Obviously, the salt and pepper should be on the kitchen counter to the right of the stove, but then the other partner wants them in the cabinet with the door shut so you don't have to look at them. So this, these are attachments to views how things should be. So the problem with views is that we think ours is right. And it sometimes is. But it's not always, because different people have different views, and so that's the world we live in. And given that that's the world, if we don't become more flexible, or in the language of this teaching, if we don't become a less, less attached to our views, if we don't cling less to our views, we're going to suffer. We're going to experience that dukkha that the Buddha talked about. The third thing we cling to is rites and rituals, uh, a particular way of doing things. So uh, people, for example, begin to... Uh, let's say someone comes here on Wednesday night. 
uh, to the center for mindfulness and uh, insight meditation. And they come a second Wednesday night, and they come a third Wednesday night. And they start coming very regularly. And sometimes they come on Saturday to do a retreat program. And that's obviously a really good habit forming, right? Maybe they're sleeping a little bit better when they go home on Wednesday night. They're hearing the Dharma teachings regularly and it inspires them to practice a little meditation at home. Um, they're starting to maybe look at the things that they're aversive to in their daily life and kind of um, letting themselves linger with the discomfort a little bit longer instead of pushing it away. And this goes on for a few months and, and then they don't go for two weeks. They don't go to the... They don't come here on Wednesday night. and So they start to uh, notice some self-criticism. So they're judging themselves. And, um, again, a little bit of scrutiny, self-scrutiny, that's good. Maybe that gets them back to the, to the meditation center. Uh, but to the degree that they were attached to a routine, even a really healthy one, a really good one, such that uh, they, they layered on top of the inability to get there, some kind of self-criticism, now they're suffering, right? Um, the idea that the, the, that the ceremony or ritual of being together includes the lights being a certain way, or the water fountain on, or the, or the, the bell being rung, um, that, that all of these accoutrements are the things that are going to wake us up. But they're not. They're playing a very auxiliary role. And then lastly, uh, and, and ultimately, what we're clinging to is personality views. Personality views. Um, referring to the ways we take ourselves to be uh, separate and solid and permanent. You know, this is the the big uh, illusion that the meditation practice is trying to expose. So we know that we have successfully abandoned clinging when we are not taking sides. Right? This temperature is better than that temperature. This way, this root walking the dog is better than that root walking. Actually, that's a view. Um, when we're not taking sides, when we're not, uh, when we're not letting our preferences for sensory experience, one kind of sensory experience over the other, uh, get in the way of being with the full range of our sensory life. I notice that sometimes just driving down the road a good song comes on and I'm really enjoying it and the song ends. Oh. Uh, it happens to me just before the end of a really good book. You know, some books are much better than others. And every now and again I get this book that is so... Often, particularly if I'm reading a... Well, it doesn't have to be a novel, but it could be nonfiction. But... Nonetheless, sometimes I get a really, really good book, and I start getting it, and I'm really enjoying it, and I can't, like, with really good books, I can't wait for the day to end so that I can 
get to the couch mm-hmm. and read the book. But when I start to get to the end of the book, there's a little bit of distress or disappointment. And what there is, is a little bit of clinging. I don't want it to end, right? So there's an experience I'm having that I'm enjoying, and I don't want it to end. That's clinging. So this is how we understand that even pleasant sensory experiences create suffering. The pleasurable things in our lives create suffering if we're not willing to let them change when they need to change. We know we've successfully abandoned clinging when we're not subscribing to fixed views, like I shouldn't be sick for this many days. This is, this is an example from my own life, you know. Um, I can't control, for the most part, what happens to my body, and I get, I'll get caught sometimes. I, I understand that I'm sick, but I shouldn't be sick for this many days. I gave the example of the dishwasher being loaded. Does anybody have that at home at all? Like the dishwasher? We know that we've successfully abandoned clinging when we're not bound to rules and rituals. Um, I'm doing meditation right if I sit on a zafu and recite the refuges and precepts three times every morning. Right? Um, I'm not taking care of my health if I don't get up at 6.45 and do 30 minutes on the treadmill five days a week. Again, could that be appropriate? Could we have goals related to our meditation practice or our physical health that are served by those fulfilling those intentions? Yes, for sure. And that's how we um, grow in many areas of our life, physically and psychologically. Uh, Again, the question is, are we attached, right? I've had, uh, I've known, I've been close to people uh, in my life who have used uh, different forms of physical exercise as a way of managing emotional distress. This is quite common. Uh, And I'm often really happy that they've learned that they have that as a resource. And I'm also sometimes concerned that as they get older and they can't do some of the more vigorous forms of exercise, um, there'll be a higher level of distress. They won't have learned how to manage it without the vigorous exercise. And we know that we have successfully abandoned clinging when we simply stop taking things personally which is the hardest thing to do, probably. When we stop taking things personally, this is happening to me, this thing, this is happening to me. That person is not being fair to me. I'm important, right? Just the idea that I'm important. I mean, on a relative level, I am, but so are you. And so is the person next to you.
So we could say that all is needed to begin this path is a little bit of honesty, a little bit of, I like to say, humility. Enough to recognize that we do in fact suffer. We don't see everything clearly. And so we are going to be subject to the natural pain of life. That's inevitable. And therefore, we have something to learn. Always. And with the Four Noble Truths in mind, the idea that both suffering is real, but also the stopping or the cessation of suffering, um, we can really turn toward the pain of our life. Right? We don't have to turn away. We, 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 we've seen in the teachings or, and or in our own experience um, that that itself is a, a version. That's a version of aversion. That's a version of tanha. Uh, we can do this, as the early teachings say, because we have the protection of the Dharma. Right? The, if we allow ourselves onto this course um, enough, uh, what we learn will support us. There'll, there'll, there'll be a positive feedback loop. Over time, our curiosity... We have to have curiosity for this kind of learning. Our curiosity, alongside the skills of mindfulness and equanimity, equanimity is the balanced or stable mind that doesn't need things to be different right now, even if you have a long-term intention for them to be so. Um, our curiosity, alongside the skills of mindfulness and equanimity, help us meet whatever is difficult or unpleasant without craving. No longer moving from arbitrary and self-serving views, that's clinging, the law of cause and effect that allowed suffering to manifest or arise are negated. Those causes and conditions are negated. And a new causal trajectory begins. It's one that points toward freedom. It's one that's based on wise view and skillful action rather than illusion in not knowing or ignorance of vidya and Pali. And to the degree that this happens, either in one moment, for two seconds, or um, gradually over time, um, we have many, many more opportunities uh, to discover that life is in fact not suffering. Right? I want to share with you, a, uh, to close, a short poem from the Terigatha, which is a collection of uh, short uh, phrases or poems that uh, express moments of awakening or insight. And these were uh, said to be uttered spontaneously by many of the women uh, living at the time of the Buddha. This is by Sakula. I saw my experiences as if they were not my own, born from a cause destined to disappear. I got rid of all that fouls the heart. 
I am cool, free.